welcome to the Park Road Talkback Podcast. Today's podcast is a conversation with Russ Dean, co-pastor at Park Road Baptist Church with Amy Jacks Dean, about his new book, Finding a New Way Home, The Unlikely Path of a Reluctant Baptist Renegade. I'm Bruce Holliday, Director of Communications at Park Road, and today Russ and I will be talking about Chapter 3 of his book entitled, Too Many Christians Aren't Ready to Live. Hello, Russ. It's good to be back with you again today. Hey, Bruce. Looking forward to uh, another conversation today. Thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. So we're working our way through your uh, book, Chapter by Chapter, and today's chapter has a very provocative title. Uh, can, te- can you tell us a little bit about what why you make this assertion that too many Christians aren't ready to live, and uh, something about the experience that prompted you to write this particular chapter. Yeah, sure. This, Like every chapter, all of these go back to one discrete experience in, in, in my life. And this goes back to my, um, I think it was my junior year at Furman, uh, 1984. Um, my father, who has spent his career as a Southern Baptist pastor and also has a wonderful uh, baritone solo voice. And um, so every year in the fall, my dad was off for one week. Uh, this was true of all Baptist churches in, in, in this uh, this day. Um, he was off for one week in a revival somewhere. He was either the revival preacher or just as likely he was the re- the revival uh, musician, the guest soloist. And so my dad in 1984 was at First Baptist Clemson for their week-long revival. Uh, my brother and sister and I, all three happened to be students at Furman that year, about 30 minutes down the road. And so as my father was um, was often wont to do, he called his children to come sing with him. And so we got in my sister's little uh, Volkswagen Beetle and drove from uh, Greenville to Clemson um, to sing with my dad that night uh, in, in the revival service. And the pastor, uh, the guest preacher, I mean, uh, was uh, Reverend Ken Chafin, Dr. Ken Chafin, who was at the Walnut Street Baptist Church in Louisville. Interestingly, uh, Amy and I later served First Baptist in Clemson, and Dr. Chafin was later my preaching professor in seminary. So I had no idea all of the um, ironies that were coming together that night as we met at First Baptist Clemson and listened to Dr. Chafin um, and his sermon was from uh, John, uh, John's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 10, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And in that sermon, Dr. Chafin said, there are too many Christians who are ready to die who aren't ready to live yet. And that statement just hit me between the eyes like a, a bolt of lightning. And what he meant was for too many Christians, faith is all about getting to heaven when you die. It's all future oriented. It's all about making sure you go to heaven. Um, and he said too many Christians are ready to die, ready for, for that part of it, but they aren't really ready to live the Christian life full and free and abundant. And Jesus said, I've come that you might have abundant life. And that life starts now. Um, and so that's where that that title comes from. That one statement, just in the moment that I heard it, it just kind of transformed my theology. And I say somewhere in this chapter, you know, it went from my theology just immediately went from future oriented to present oriented. It went from there to here, from heaven to earth, from then to now, Um it was just a kind of a complete transformation of my understanding of, of faith. 
So let's back up just a little bit before that night uh, with the sermon and uh, talk about what you believe as a younger person growing up. Um, I assume that you were you were taught atonement theology and that um, what really mattered was not so much your earthly presence, but uh, the state of your soul. I, I was I was raised solidly in the evangelical tradition. My dad was a Southern Baptist pastor. My dad was not an evangelist. He didn't preach hellfire and damnation, you know, all that. Um, um, but very much um, his preaching and all the preaching that I heard um, really ha- had to do with making sure you're saved so that when you died, and I've heard many, you know, uh, revival type preachers, Preachers say, if you died tonight, would you go to heaven? Do you know you'd go to heaven? Um, that's the kind of emphasis. And there was very much an emphasis that this life is just kind of kind of a trial run. It's just kind of practice for the real thing. What really about all that really matters is that you've made sure that you that that your uh, salvation is intact, so that if you died tonight or fifty years from now, when you die, you're going to get to heaven. In this chapter, you you then discuss the fact that this kind of leads to a dualistic uh, view of the world, where the body is corrupt, but the real self, the soul, I assume, is incorruptible. And that they're two separate things. And then you, you kind of deal with the issue of if that's the case, do we need to be as concerned about a child's hunger or should we just be concerned about their soul? As I thought more deeply about faith and as I began to think more deeply about theology and this theology in which I was raised, I, I began to realize uh, it, it does in some way... Um, Take away the incentive. Okay, I'm supposed to do good things for people. I'm supposed to help feed the hungry. But if I don't, well, if I'm saved and I'm going to go to heaven anyway, well, it's okay. You know, um, and so I, I do think that there is uh, hidden within this kind of theology a disincentive you mentioned. Um, and, and there there is hidden within this theology a reason to to kind of sit back and say, well, I've got it. I've, I've done what I need to do. And, you know, I hate that those people are poor, but, you know, or those kids are hungry or whatever. Um, and so at the end, at the end of this chapter, I talked about uh, uh, dualism. And this is something right. that I first learned from um, my friend and professor, the late Dr. William Hull in Birmingham, um, and Dr. Hall taught me to, to understand that what I had been raised to, be, to, to believe, uh, what I had been raised with was really a, a dualism that came out of Greek philosophy, Plato, um, and the idea that, the, the, that the, there's a distinction between the physical body and the spirit or the soul. Um, that's a very Platonic idea. And the Apostle Paul, who is responsible for most of the New Testament, um, thought that dualism, and, and in Paul's day, it was in the form of a, of a theology called Gnosticism, uh, from the Greek word gnosis, to know. If you know the right things, if your right thinking, your right understanding is, is uh the path to salvation. And so in all of that, there's very much a separation between the body and the soul. And we're taught that when you die, your body goes in the ground and your soul comes out of your body and goes to heaven. Um, 
very dualistic, very Platonic, right. very Greek. And what Dr. Hall taught me was that Paul was a Hebrew, and the Hebrews don't have that separation. Theirs is not a dualism. Paul's was not a dualism. Um, in the creation narrative in Genesis, um, the, in the second chapter, the second creation narrative, God creates a man uh, from the dust of the earth, molds the man, shapes the man, and then God breathes into him the breath of life, and he becomes a living soul. Now, the way I would have heard that, Bruce, um, for many years is God breathed a soul into him. And so the body is the physical container on the outside and God blew a soul down into him. And that's the real part of you, the soul inside. And, and so the object is to make sure you get your soul saved. And, you know, so whatever happens to the body happens to the body. Um, but if the soul gets saved, that's the most important part. So that when you die, the body goes in the ground and the soul goes to heaven. And Dr. Hull taught me that that's really not even properly biblical. Uh, in the creation narrative, God doesn't blow a soul into the body. God inspirits the body. God breathes the breath of life into the body, and the body becomes nefesh, the Hebrew, Hebrew word nefesh, becomes a living thing, a living soul. You say, you say that uh, we do not have souls, we are souls. And so that, that raises kind of a semantic problem for me, just because I, my, my conception of soul is so external to the physical. It's just uh, extra physical. It's, it's out there. And, and I'm very much ingrained in this dualistic interpretation of what a soul is. How do you, how do you help people bring the physical and the soul together into to one entity? Well, I, I think this is difficult first because it is so ingrained in our understanding, not just religiously, but um, but movies and and uh, and novels. We we have seen this. We have been raised on this idea of a a soul um, that being a separate thing, and we see that all the time in you know, Hollywood motion pictures, you know, this, this idea of, of, of a soul, um, separate from the body. And so we, we are very much, uh, our whole intellectual Western tradition, I think comes out of that, that Greek understanding. Um, but I, I would point people to, uh, First Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul goes in detail about the resurrection body. And um, what, what I've come to understand is that Paul talks, uh, Paul never talks about the soul separate from the body. And so in, in, he's talking, uh, apparently somebody in Corinth had asked him what happens when you die. And he says, okay, here's, here's the deal. Um, just like you plant a seed in the ground, and that seed grows up to a new thing, a tree. When you die, you plant your physical body in the ground and a new body grows up. A spiritual body grows up. And so I don't know what Paul had in mind that what a spiritual body looked like um, or what the actual qualities were. But Paul can't envision life outside a body. So there are physical bodies and there are spiritual bodies. There are earthly bodies and there are heavenly bodies. And when we die, Paul does not say your body goes in the ground and the soul comes out of it and the soul goes to, to, 
uh, to be with God. Um, Paul says, and I, I quote the words of an old gospel hymn, I'll have a new body. And so Paul says the physical body goes in the ground and a spiritual body is reborn. Um, now, Bruce, that might not make any sense, or, the, or a spiritual body might sound an awful lot like a ghostly, you know, the kind of thing <laughs> we envision as a soul. Right. I think yeah. I think what Paul's emphasis all is here is the holism of who we are. He is fighting against this idea that we could separate. Um, the real essence of you as something inside you and then ignore the physical part of you. And, and so what I want to take from that is that what's important is that we keep this together. So much of the preaching that I heard was about the salvation of the soul. It really did lead to this idea, well, they're poor people, but if I don't take care of them, but I can preach and get them saved, well, that's fine. Because when they die, they'll go to heaven, and then all the suffering here will, will take care of itself. Um, and I think we can't, we can't get there if we follow Paul's theology, um, it, it, this theology of whole, a, a holistic body rather than a dualistic body. Right. You know, you... I think you in the chapter someplace you say that salvation is physical, it is corporate, it's communal, and it's social. How does that? What does that mean exactly? Yeah, again, the way I was raised, Bruce, salvation was a moment, uh, and and I was raised solidly in the revivalistic tradition where you could walk the aisle and get saved. Uh, and and there are some pastors who would say if you can't name the day and the hour that you were saved, you're not saved. You know, there's very much a transactional kind of thing going on here. At one moment, I'm not saved, and then I accept Christ, and I walk the aisle, and I talk to the pastor, and I'm saved. And lo and behold, from that point on, I'm saved. So there was a transaction in that moment. I think that doesn't do justice to the beautiful, rich um concept of salvation that is much broader than that. Yes, there are emphases in Scripture about you taking care of yourself and you making decisions that you need to make. Um, But the word salvation starts in the Old Testament talking about the people of God, the Hebrew people as a people being the elect, the chosen, the saved people of God. So there is a a corporate nature to this thing. And so just to make it uh, an individual moment of transaction um, is is to... um, is to miss a lot of the richness of the communal aspect. And so, you know, we talk about social justice in our church, not just individual justice, not just evangelical, you know, individual justice. Um, And so Scripture, I think, points us toward a movement um, where all people understand the fullness and the grace and the goodness of God. And um, that I think that gets played out in implications for public policy, political policy, all that kind of stuff. Um, but if we just say it's about the individual, I think we've missed a lot of the understanding of what salvation is if, if we will read uh, Scripture carefully and look for the nuances and the understanding of that word. It, it's not just about walking the aisle and you got your soul saved that day. Um, it, it is about 
uh, brothers and sisters. It is about it is about the community, um, not just about right. me. Does this this philosophy, uh, this holistic approach to um, salvation, does it reject or somehow uh, diminish the value of the idea of atonement theology? Is this a is this contrary to atonement theology, or is it supplementary? What? How do you view those? Yeah, and again, I, I will talk about this in detail in chapter nine of the of the book. Um, there are some people who, who would say you're rejecting, you know, the sacrifice and the, the sacrificial death of, of Jesus. Uh, um, I, I'm not in any way, in my understanding, diminishing the death of Jesus. Um, I understand atonement different today. And I, I, I would I would understand atonement more as what I would call participatory atonement rather than substitutionary atonement, rather than understand Jesus died for you. You've got to accept that he substitute, you know, God demands death. And so God demands somebody's death for your sins. And Jesus can be a substitute for that. And what I think is that Jesus didn't die to, to save us from God. Jesus shows us what God is like who God is. Sacrificial love is who God is. And so what I see in the death of Jesus is not a substitute for me, but an example of who God is. And so it's a calling for me to give my life away, hopefully figuratively rather than literally. But but that's, uh, and again, very deep and rich and long um, theological tradition of that kind of language in Christian in Christian history, I just never had heard that, Bruce. I had only heard um, the, the the language of atonement, um, uh, penal substitutionary atonement that goes back to um, Anselm, I think was, you know, in the 13th century. Um, right. And that's been the dominant one for um, a, a segment of Christianity, uh, but it's hardly the only atonement theory that's been that's been talked about uh, by theologians and uh, scholars over the uh, you know twenty centuries of of Christian history. Through three chapters, we've seen some pretty significant moments in your spiritual journey, uh, and I'm sure we're going to see some more as the as we go through these chapters. Is this experience of evolution, of transformation, of growth? Is this, do you think, uh, unique to you or uh, or to some individuals, or is it part and parcel of a spiritual journey? Is it what everyone should be experiencing? I think my story, um, from the response I've gotten from my book, my story is not unique. Um, now, I do think that being the son of a Southern Baptist pastor and being interested in a career in the church, I was I, I was always a religious kid, you know, so I was involved in this stuff, Bruce. It, it was just, it was the water I drank. Um, and so I think it hit me hard, um, maybe harder than some people, because I, I thought about this kind of stuff all the time. You know, most kids didn't think much about, you know, the death of Jesus. Kind of thing. I, I yeah, think, I'll have to raise my hand there. <laughs> I think I spent more time than most kids thinking about that kind of stuff. And so by the time I heard this from Dr. Chafin, my junior year in college, it struck me pretty hard. You know, it, it was pretty re- remarkable. And yet, 
as I've heard from people who've read the book, they've said to me, wow, those are exactly the kind of questions that I was asking, the kind of experiences I've had. I just didn't have any place to ask them, you know. Um, and I think that I don't think you need some Damascus Road dramatic conversion experience. Um, um, but I certainly think there is an ongoing metaphor in scripture that faith is a journey and that we ought to be open, that we ought to be walking with God, you know, that there ought to be these experiences that change us and shape us and mold us. And if we're open, um, then I, I, I think we all have those experiences that we could point to. Um, that's that's kind of my my belief, right. my hope. Um, so kind of both and I think because of the way I was raised and kind of the, my trajectory in life, um, it, it may have hit me harder or, or seemed more dramatic. Um, but I certainly hope that um, lots of people are dealing with a growing, deepening, opening understanding of faith um, as they as they go along life. Well, Russ, you've done it again. You've given us an incredible amount of uh, of uh, subjects and ideas to think about. I don't. I don't seem to have trouble filling up twenty five <laughs> minutes with you, Bruce. Do I? <laughs> no. But that's good. That's a great. Thing. Thanks for asking the question, Seth. Thank you. If you would like to learn more about obtaining a copy of Russ's book, Finding a New Way Home, you can find that information at the Park Road website parkroadbaptist.org under the resources tab. We invite you to share this podcast with your friends and family. They can always find it on the Park Road website, or you can listen and subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, Audible, Spotify, Stitcher, or TuneIn. That's it for this week. From all of us at Park Road Church, thank you for listening today. Grace and peace to you. Mm -hmm.